chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Um, if you're clicking there or turning there, but if you use the Bible in the pew, uh, just to help you out, this is on page 45, so kind of toward the beginning. While you're turning there, um, I love epic stories. Uh, anybody that's ever had any conversation or time with me knows that if you start talking about books or movies, I can continue that conversation on for days. Um, I love talking about, I love watching movies that are those long, like all the Lord of the Rings movies. Obviously, I'm a huge Star Wars guy. People complain about how many Marvel movies are. I'm like, give me double the amount. Just keep building these stories. I love the Lord of the Rings novels, Stormlight, all these different things. Not only the stories themselves, but the reason why I like such big, epic stories like this is many times they really get you to think about the reality of life and humanity, different aspects of what it means to be human, and most importantly, the reality of God. I bring that up, uh, well, one, because if anybody else is like that, come and nerd out with me later and we can talk. But I, I bring that up because Exodus in the Bible is such an epic story. It's actually one part of a larger story. When we look at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, this is this huge, large, five-part story that tells about the beginning of God's people. Not only the beginning of creation, but how God began the people of Israel and what that means for the rest of Scripture going forward. And Exodus is the epic within the epic, the story within the story, to let people know about the reality of who God is. And in turn, how does that, knowing who God is, how does that influence how we live? And so I, I bring this up because we're starting a series going for the most of the summer through Exodus. And the idea of this is to find God, to understand the reality of God and who he is. The stories that we have in the Old Testament paint pictures about who God is. And then in turn, how does that information, how do these stories help us know what it's like to live for him, what he expects, what does it mean to be his people? And we, so we truly want to find God. We want to understand God. Who is God as we read these stories? How does he reveal himself to us as his people? And so each week we're going to be focusing on one larger theme, one that these stories point to about the reality of God. And the one for this week is this. God is still working. God is still working. He is a God who works, who is active, and he never stops. He is still working. Before we get into that, before we get into the story, though, let's pray and ask that God would speak to our hearts. God, we do. We're grateful that you're here. We're grateful for being in your presence. For God, as we sang earlier, Spirit, that you would be moving in this place and you would open our eyes up to your presence that we would be aware that you are here. Wherever we're at watching, God, I pray that we would be aware of your presence and we would hear from you. And even though we might not have that emotional feeling of it, God, let us know the truth and hold on to the truth. You are here and you are speaking and you are working and you love us beyond what we can comprehend. God, I pray that you would encourage us through your word this morning. I pray that you would let us see you through your word this morning. All of the different things that we bring into this place, you know what they are, the things that we're carrying, good or bad, remind us and show us that you are a working God and that you never are dormant. You are always with us and you always care. I just pray that you would encourage us through your word this morning, God. In your name we pray, amen. God 
is still working. God is always working. As we go through these first couple chapters um, in Exodus, we're going to see a couple realities about this truth that God is still working. And the first one is this. God is always working and is faithful to his promises. God is always working and is faithful to his promises. The book of Exodus begins like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphti, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. Excuse me. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, these verses might seem a little skippable, right? It's just, here's some names, we get this list of names, this detail about 70 people in Egypt, but they all die off, and then there's still a whole lot of people that are increasing exponentially. That's really all the information that there is. So what's the big deal with all of this? Now, a lot of our TV shows, they begin with previously on, and then you get this summary of what's going on because they want to make sure that you connect the show that you're about to watch to the episode that previously happened. Um, it Maybe if you are binging, you might skip that part because it's fresh in your mind, but if you're starting season two and it's been a year since you watched season one, that previously on is really important, right? As some, have anybody ever in here, you've gone and you've gone to watch a season two of something and they didn't have the previously and you're kind of lost and you're like, okay, YouTube, help me out. What happened in season one? Who's ever had that experience? We need to know how what's coming connects to what's before. That's what these seven verses are doing. These seven verses are the epitome of previously in the story of God, connecting what's happening in Exodus to what would happen what went down in Genesis. Exodus isn't a new book. It's not a new story. It's part two, like I said before, of this five-part story. And so what does this previously on section here at the start of Exodus point us back to? It points us back to the fact that God has always been working and has always been faithful to his promises. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be a great nation and God would work through them to bless the world. God was working. He made this promise to Abraham. I'm going to make a nation from you. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham his descendants would experience 400 years of slavery, that they would be strangers in a country not their own. And God renewed his promise to Abraham at that time. You're going to go through this hardship. Your people are going to experience some incredible difficulties, but they're still going to be great. God was at work. Read through the rest of Genesis from Abraham and on. You can see God's faithfulness to Abraham, his faithfulness to his son Isaac, his faithfulness to Jacob, and faithful to not only Jacob's sons, but to Joseph. God was at work. Joseph, Joseph, through a lot of hardship, was used by God to prepare Egypt for seven years of famine. Through his leadership, they made storehouses of food and got ready for hard times to come. God was at work. Joseph's father, Jacob, and their family, this baby nation of 70 people, come to Egypt because they were starving. 
God was able to rescue this little nation from starvation because of what he did through Joseph. God was at work. And at the end of Genesis, Joseph reminds them of God's promise. It says, Then Joseph said to his brother Israelites, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is at work. So when we read Exodus 1 through chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we're not just hearing about these 12 brothers and these 70 people. This is the culminating moment of everything that God has been doing, and he's not finished. The promise that he made to Abraham was 550 years before this text. And throughout that time, we see how God protected them, how he provided for them, how he moved this little nation along. He was actively working through each generation, and that, and he hasn't changed. He's going to continue to work through them, continue to bless them, because he, God, is the grand weaver, bringing the different scenes together to create this huge, amazing, grand story. And we could say, well, why didn't he just make the nation? Just go, hey, boom, there's my people. Because God is just as concerned about the process as he is with the finish. To him, the journey is just as important as the destination. He is always working. And in that, I want you to know something really important this morning. God is working in your life. He is the same God to you that he was to the Israelites and he was working in them, he's working in the, at, at, their, at that point, and he's working in their lives, and he's working in your life as well. Do you realize that God has been working on you and working in you throughout your life? At a glance, you might not see it, but I encourage you to look a little deeper and be a little more curious. When were the moments that maybe God was trying to get your attention? And maybe some of those you realized, but maybe some of those you ignored. But God was working. During which moments was God trying to grow you or to develop you? When are the moments God was speaking to your heart, prompting your heart? What people in your life has God used to impact you or speak truth to you, to tell you to keep going and to not give up, to remind you of who you are in him or proclaim his love to you? What dreams have been in your heart for so long that they may be silent now, but God is prompting you to trust him and allow him to use you. Right now, God is working. God is working in your life. You might not realize it, you might not see it, but that doesn't make it any less true. He is still working and he is working in you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to experience him. He wants to use you in this world to be part of what he's doing. He is never dormant. He is never tired. He is never taking a break. God is always present, and he's always with you, and he's always working, still working, faithful to his promises. The second thing that we're going to see about God and the fact he's always working in these first couple chapters is that God is work, still working, even during our worst moments. He is a God who works, and he's working even during our worst moments. It goes on in chapter 1, starting in verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And, he said, and Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, 
The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. This is an inciting event. This is the moment where the entire plot changes. Everything hinges on this moment. A vast political and ideological shift is happening in Egypt, and it is drastic. There's a new pharaoh in town, one who wasn't connected, who wasn't the one that worked with Joseph, who's ignoring the reality of Joseph and forgetting that reality. Pharaoh doesn't see Yahweh as a hand of blessing. He sees the, the Israelites' God as a threat to him, as a threat to his power. As, and the idea of this Pharaoh and his thought process and why he sees them as a threat, it's really awesome what archaeology has been able to discover. And through some amazing archaeological discoveries, we have actual video footage of Pharaoh explaining his thought process here on why they need to treat the Israelites like this. Let me show you this footage of Pharaoh. Guys, order another round because we're staying here. Yeah. Yeah. What was I thinking going back to Ant Island? I mean, we just got here and we have more than enough food to get us through the winter, right? Why go back? But there was that ant that stood up to me. then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? It's amazing what Pharaoh looked like, right? But that's the reality. This, this is his thinking. That's exactly his thought process. That's exactly what's happening. We have to suppress them. We can't allow them to rise up. We can't, them to real, can't get them to realize how strong they are. We can't let them get any bigger. They're a threat to us. We have to control these Hebrew people. He sees them as a people who need to be broken, controlled, and kept down because if they rise up, they could revolt join their enemies, and take Egypt over. So this is more, that, but this is more than even just the political fight and what he's talking about. What does it say in verse 10 again? Pharaoh says, lest they multiply. In those three words, Pharaoh draws a line in the sand. 
not just against merely the Israelites, but against God himself. Because what has God told the people? To multiply and fill the earth. And Pharaoh is saying, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. One scholar by the name of Terence Fretham calls Pharaoh a symbol for the anti-creation forces of death, which take on the God of life. And so Pharaoh's not having it, and he puts his plans into place. None of them, the thing about Pharaoh's plans, though, is that they show how incompetent Pharaoh is, really how stupid his plans are, and he can't get anything done. First, he, re, he works them with heavy burdens, forcing them to build cities. It says in verse 12 that the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread and the people of, of, of the people of Israel. So they turn up the pressure. It says in verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. But it wasn't working. They keep working. They keep living. They keep multiplying, increasing. So Pharaoh calls two of the main Hebrew midwives to him and gives them evil instruction instructions. He tells these Hebrew midwives, if a daughter is born, it can live. But if a son is born, make it look like a stillborn and kill that child. The midwives know who is in charge. They, will, they don't do what Pharaoh says. They refuse to do what Pharaoh says. It says in verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives to to his, call, call the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. I'm sorry, but that's really funny. These Hebrew women, they're just really strong. They just, before we can get there, baby, they're all, it's, we couldn't do anything. They couldn't make it look like an accident. And they're able to trick Pharaoh. But again, he's ticked. And so a third time, he intensifies things. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. But then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now it's just not the midwives making things look like an accident. Now Pharaoh has told his people, if you see a Hebrew baby boy, throw it in the water. If you see a Hebrew baby boy, cast it into the water so that it dies. Next to Pharaoh's plans being downright evil, they're just stupid. And none of this is working. And it's showing what a horrible leader it is. He is. Now to say that the nation is in the midst of hardship would be the understatement of this text. But God is indeed responsive to the injustice and pain inflicted on his people. Later in Exodus, we're going to hear God say to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out. But before that, though, in this sec first, second part of chapter one, what in the world? This chapter is intense. It's horrible. It's evil. What in the world, God? Did you stop working? This chapter reminds us, though, of a really important truth that has to be clarified. 
Simply because there is a loving, caring God doesn't mean that we won't experience hardship. Simply because there is a caring, loving, all-powerful God does not mean that we will not experience hardship. God has given humanity the ability to make choices, to follow him or to reject him, to obey him or go their own way. He doesn't take that choice away from people when people use it in the worst possible ways. Because to, to allow, to, in order for people to make a good choice, he has to allow them to make a bad choice. And he can't take away the bad choices any more than he's going to take away the good ones. So even though Pharaoh makes the most vile and evil of choices, though, God is still working. And how do we know that God is still working? Well, we know that God is working because of what Pharaoh says himself. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to make you a great nation. <coughs> Excuse me. I will bless you and make your name great. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh is the first person in the Bible up to this point who calls, refers to them as a collective group, as a nation. He says, the people of Israel. This evil leader is the one acknowledging God's promises are coming true. God's promises are coming true. And every time he puts the pressure on, the text says, and they're multiplying because God's word is coming true. He is still working. We also know that God is working through the testimony of the women. The midwives refused Pharaoh's order to kill the boys. It says in verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Let me tell you, if anyone in all of Israel, in the midst of these horrible circumstances, could give testimony of God working, it was these midwives. We know that obeying God is worth it. We know that he is there. We know that he blesses. Let us tell you what happened with Pharaoh. These women were able to testify that God is working, even in the midst of our worst situations. I'm not sure what horrible thing you have going on right now or what horrible thing you have gone through but i know that god does and i know that god is god is in tune with what we are going through his heart breaks with ours and he deeply cares about our lives he wants to rescue us he wants to restore us he wants us to know the reality of who he is and nothing can stop the plans of god even in the midst of the difficulties, even in the midst of humanity's bad choices, God is going to keep working. He'll use the vileness of humanity for his good purposes. Joseph said to his brothers at the end of Genesis 50, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God is with you. Peter Enns, who writes an amazing commentary on Exodus, if you want to pick that up if you're interested, he says, God's people are never alone. When we look at this story, God's people are never alone. And you are never alone either. He is always working. When we are in the midst of our difficult chapter, we have to remember it's not our entire story. We understandably get laser-focused on the scene that we're in. And that makes sense. But God knows where the story has been, what's going on, and how the story ends. He is working in our lives for our good. His 
by his perfect wisdom. And because of that, we can trust him. And know this, God bringing us through painful circumstances is sometimes as important as us bringing us out of them. He walks through these things with us. In the painful process, God can help to grow us, mature us, and make us more like himself. It says in James, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Know that God is still working. You might be in the midst of one of the worst chapters of your life right now. And if you are, I am so sorry. And I want you to know we want to be a church who will walk with you because you are not meant to go through those seasons and those valleys alone. But know that God is with you. And he is working even in the midst of the deepest valleys. God is working even in our darkest moments. And the last thing that we see in these, this beginning section is that God is working even through the least likely of people. God is working even through the least likely of people. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The Levites were the priestly uh, group of the 12 tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dobbled it with stuff, made it waterproof. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood a good distance to know that would be done to him. <coughs> Moses is born. His wife, his mom, hides him for as long as she can. There comes a point where obviously she can't hide him anymore. And she, in faith, imagine the stress, the pressure, the confusion, the worry of a mother taking their three-month-old baby and putting it in a basket and putting it into the water and saying, God, protect this child. What's really amazing is that when you read the word for the word basket here in Hebrew, it's the same word that we get in Genesis 6 for ark. And so it's like Moses' mom made a little ark to protect him from the water, protect him from the chaos, protect him from what could happen, trusting that God's promises would still be sure. What happens next? Of all the people in Egypt who would have found him, Pharaoh's daughter finds this Hebrew baby. You would think that that would be disaster. I, not only did an Egyptian find Moses, but one of the Pharaoh's kids found Egyptians. But, like any typical teenager, Pharaoh's daughter disobeys her father and does what she wants. I don't think my kids are in here listening right now. <coughs> Excuse me, she takes the child in. And what can only be God showing off a little bit, the baby's own mother, Moses' mom, is summoned to be his wet nurse and then is paid to do it. I mean, come on, that's just God, right? It says in chapter, in verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. How is that for disaster turned celebration? Still scary, still what's going to happen, but Moses is saved. God is working, and we're going to see how this story unfolds because it's a prelude of things to come. But here's the thing to see in this little section here. 
Think about the people that God has used in this story. There were very willing people. I mean, there's Moses' father, a Levite, who married a Levite woman. There's Moses' mother, who protected this child, that was dear to her heart, that she saw was special. Moses' sister, who watched over him and cared for him. The midwives, they obeyed God rather than Pharaoh. And think about the fact that the midwives, the, Moses' mom could have probably heard the story of the midwives, which would have empowered her to make the decisions that she was making. I'm not going to do what Pharaoh's saying. I'm going to trust my God. These were people willing and being used by God. But there were also unwilling or unsuspecting people that God used. God used the horrible things that Pharaoh did. The more that he seeks to control the people, the more out of control they get. They continue to multiply. God used Pharaoh's daughter. She goes for an afternoon at the river and finds herself in court being part of a powerful plan of a powerful God who is always working, and she doesn't even realize it. Moses, he's just along for the ride. He's just cooing and pooping and whatever in the basket. He has no idea what's going on, which is good because Moses can't take credit for anything as far as being part of God's story. God is the one who has placed him in his story, and God is using him. Except for Moses' father, who isn't even named here, the rest are people whom the original audience would not have picked for being used by God. I mean, we've been part of those moments where everybody's there and, hey, we're going to pick teams. It happens on Monday night with basketball. And Chavez is always one of the first ones picked because he's seven feet tall. And the tall people are always going. And Clarissa's picked next because she can beat everybody. It's always that what happens. And then me and Leon are waiting to be picked last. That's just what we're Leon's not even here to defend himself. Sorry. We know what that reality is. When you look at some of this and you see what's going on, these are not the people that the original audience would have picked first. They wouldn't have picked the evil, the bad guys, the people associated with him. They wouldn't have picked the women. Thank God that doesn't happen anymore, right? But God always picks the women. God always uses the women to be the ones to pre 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 present the heroes, to proclaim the stories, to move the story along, to make the story happen. Where the women aren't picked by the normal society, God is the one picking them first. God is always picking the least likely people, the willing or the unwilling, to use whoever will be used and can be used for his purposes to make his story go on that the world will be redeemed more to himself. When we think about the fact that God is in control, he is the all-powerful, he is the one doing things, that we aren't, we're just a part of his story, that should, for some of us, that should be very freeing. We don't have to fear others. We don't have to be based on what others think of us. We don't have to go with the approval of people or anything like that. God wants to use us. God wants, he doesn't need us, he wants to use us. And so God, it doesn't matter what other people have said about you, God is saying, I want to use you. For some of us, this should be very humbling because you need to realize you're not all that. And we just surrender to the reality of who God is, that he's in control. God, use me, I am your servant, I am following you, you're the leader. But for some of us, this should be very empowering. God wants to use you. God wants to use you. He is always working. He doesn't need us, 
but he wants us to be a part of what he's doing in the world. And so in your workplace, God wants to use you. In your class, God wants to use you. In your building, God wants to use you. In your family, God wants to use you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your resume is or if you don't have a resume. God wants to use you because he is God. He's the one doing it. And he wants you to be a part of what he's doing. That should get you excited. You are made for more than just earning a paycheck. You are made to be a part of what the creator of the universe is doing to redeem us back to himself. If the world isn't as it should be, it's because the Christians are forgetting who they are. We need to be the people of God being used by God to draw this world back to him, showing the world what a good and beautiful and gracious and powerful God that he is. We need to be reminded that he will use all of us. This is one of the reasons why, to be honest, I go by Bobby. I know that for some of you, that's, you know, what did we call you? I always go by Bobby. I tell my students, call me Bobby. I don't go by professor. I don't go by pastor. I don't go by reverend, any of those things, because there's not a spiritual hierarchy in the kingdom of God. You are as close to God as I am. You are going to be used by God just like me. There is nothing special about where I stand compared to where you are. We are all the children of God, following him, being used by him, and God wants to use you. God wants to tell people about himself through you. God wants to make this place better through you. You were made for more than just sitting in the pew. You were made to be a part of what God is doing in this church. And so I hope that challenges you. I hope that that encourages you. Maybe for some of you, convicts you a little bit. You need to be part of what God is doing. It's because God is always working, and he uses the least likely of people, and that's all of us. And so how, how are you being used by God? How are you joining him in what he's doing? What does it look like to be used by him in your work, in your family, in your school, whatever that might be? God, show me how I can serve you. Show me how I can make you known. Show me how I can be part of what you're doing. God is always working, even through the least likely of people. As I close today, we need to remember, we need to have eyes to see him. The key to experiencing the work of God is knowing that he is indeed working and then simply having eyes to see it. We don't always see the reality of God, I would say because basic reality, we're not looking for the reality of God. And so God's work, God is always working, and he works out of his promises. If you want to start tracing the work of God around you, refamiliarize yourself with what God has promised. Be, get into the word. How, what does God promise to people that he is going to do and he will do? And that will provide you the clues and the evidence of how he's working in your life. It says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which, beget a, he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It says in Galatians 6.9, let us be not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Keep going. Don't give up, he says. Psalm 29, the Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us 
from all unrighteousness. I mean, these are just some of the promises of God, but they remind us God is working on us to make us more like himself, to help us to keep going, to give strength to us that we can serve him, to that we could be forgiven and know a life of peace and grace and mercy. God is working. He is always working. And you need to be able to see that. So that's my dare for you for this series. My dare for you for this series is that you would pray this prayer. God, show me you. Show me yourself. Show me who you are in my life. Show me how you're working in my life. Show me who you are through your word. God, show yourself to me. I dare you to pray that prayer. Not just in this moment, not just today, but throughout this series. Not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. God, I mean, we've just talked about this. God is always working. So every day this week, pray that, God, how have you been working? Show me how you've working. Remind me of how you've been working. Let me see the reality of who you are. I dare you to pray prayers like that. And you know why? Because I know that those are the prayers that God loves to answer. He is not hiding from you. He is not in a distance. He is here, and he wants you to know him. He wants you to be with him. He wants you in relationship with him. He is the God who's always working, and he never stops. So ask him to show you that reality. We're going to close today by uh, taking communion. I'm going to ask the worship team if they can come up, and our team is going to start passing out the elements. If you've never uh, taken communion with us, while they're getting set up, just a couple of instructions. Uh, they're going to pass the different trays around that have bread in them and juice.